All right. Welcome everyone to the Human Centered Security Podcast. Today I'm here with Jason Puglisi. He is an application security engineer at a financial technology company. He performs ethical hacking to discover vulnerabilities, guide solutions, and inform organization-wide security measures. Human security is a particular passion of his, including security culture, awareness, and various aspects of social engineering. So welcome, Jason. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Heidi. Happy to be here. So to jump right in, my question for you is when I say the security user experience, which uh, funny enough, Jared Spool uses the acronym SUCKS, <laughs> security user experience. Um, what does that mean to you and why is it important to you? It's such a broad topic, but I think about the interactions people have with security tools and software and defenses, which can seem like obstacles sometimes. Um, and even just interactions people have with security team members, whether it's inside a company or outside you know you might be going to someone inside of your company for help uh with a security issue or you might even be re reporting a security vulnerability to someone at another company so i think you know there are the things and a user comes across every day like logging into a website and how painful or painless is that or even just at your job itself what security barriers are you running into and yeah, there, there are so many different aspects to that. Tell me a little bit about your job. Like what, what does an application security engineer do? Yeah, we focus less on like network and server security itself and more on uh, the code that people are writing and the issues it might have. Uh, we look for mistakes developers might make during design or during coding. Um, and we try to find those ahead of time before actual attackers can, you know, exploit those and create some impact to finances or users or something else. And that's where the offensive security aspects comes into play. Like that's what you're describing, right? Yeah. Um, on offensive security in particular, we are emulating attackers and mm -hmm. sometimes people know where you know launching attacks sometimes they don't sometimes we don't want other people internally to know so you can see how are you responding to our attacks as if this was like a real yeah. data breach or vulnerability or something um sometimes we have access to code that we can look at and try to find issues sometimes we don't sometimes we're just throwing attacks at a website and seeing how it responds but yeah that that really is our goal on offensive security is to emulate attackers and you know test out apps and websites and see what issues we can find that sounds exciting <laughs> how did you get into that um it's certainly a very specific technical um subdivision of security and mm -hmm. when i started out in the field i started working in a lot of smaller companies where it was just a few people on the security team. So it was wearing a bunch of different hats at once and doing everything from a bit of this kind of security testing assessment work, but also a lot of defensive work, also a lot of interacting with other teams at the company to help the security questions. 
Um, I particularly enjoyed helping run bug bounty programs where we would be taking security submissions from, you know, anyone outside the company who wants to test our software and find issues in it. I think getting into offensive security in particular was from, you know, an interest in breaking things to make them better. I don't like to write code. Uh, <laughs> I learned that pretty quickly in my career. And I, I think I decided pretty quickly I'd much be much rather be the one breaking the code than writing it. It's more fun yeah. to me. And I think it allows me to exercise creative muscles a lot because creative or anxious muscles, maybe I feel like on offensive security, we're always thinking about what's wrong with software and what could go wrong in the process or design. So it is a lot of thinking for the worst case scenario, but it's a pretty creative field because you always have to kind of be one step ahead of attackers and um, think about what's what's new or novel that we could try to exploit. If a UX designer who is working on products for software engineers, I don't know, maybe they work for GitLab or, you know, someplace like that, right? So like their mm -hmm. end users are engineers. What sort of advice do you have for them or like what sort of learnings do you have that you could share that would help them design software that would make, that would be more secure, that, that would help their users be more secure, if that makes sense? Yeah, I would say, you know, take take a look at companies who have big security teams and what they're doing. Um, look for companies that are writing blogs about security incidents they have or about their security development processes. I know Cloudflare is, you know, a big mm -hmm. company that's frequently writing about attacks they experience um, or new security controls they're implementing. So it's cool to read their write-ups. they write, -ups. write really well too. Like they write succinctly <laughs> and like in a way that you can understand. Yeah, definitely. Their their write-ups are great. And it's, it's so nice to read about, you know, them explaining vulnerabilities that are out there in the wild or what they're doing to protect their customers. So I think a first step is finding companies who are really paying special attention to the field of security and seeing what they're doing and step through some of their flows, maybe see how they're handling logins or password resets and how they handle privileged access and delegating user access within their apps. Um, I think that's important. Yeah, that's really good advice. I And it's funny because I spent a lot of time on on Cloudflare, like looking at different things and hmm. even just like words that I didn't know, they like would have explanations for them on their blog. And I was like, what a great resource. Like, <laughs> so glad that they, they do this. Yeah. Um, where does the work that you do? So offensive security, where does that impact the user experience? Yeah, I think from the moment we find an issue in a piece of software we're thinking about how to fix it mm -hmm. and some fixes may be totally invisible to user maybe it's just changing some code on the back end and the server is processing something different and the user isn't going to be impacted at all uh, other times maybe we need to make a change to the login flow or change the like 
error or response we're giving back to a user, and then suddenly you might be making things more difficult. You might be slowing down a process. Sometimes you may be making the process quicker. It's not always a bad thing, but I think a lot of the time security comes down to adding additional controls and defenses, which do a lot of the time add some amount of friction or confusion to a user, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, it's easy for us uh, in security to make heavy handed suggestions, right? And say, you need to do, you know, steps one, two, three, four, five, and fix all these things. Um, but, you know, we all need to think about the balance between security and user impact. And it's not really for us, I believe, on security teams to dictate the exact solution you need or the way to implement it. We can provide suggestions, but I think it is important for you know, business teams and others to consider what they think is the best path forward. Yeah, you illustrated kind of an interesting point, something that I tried to portray in my book, where there are kind of like all these things that are happening under the surface. You know, security isn't necessarily impacting the user experience for the most part. The user has no idea that these things are happening in the background. Yeah. Like everything's just kind of working and, you know, they're nothing they cannot see anything that would tell them that, that that stuff's happening in the background yeah it's not until security kind of bubbles to the surface and that's where it impacts user experience so like if the user is faced with an obstacle you know faced with some sort of control or hurdle something that they have to do something that stops them in their tracks an action that the user has to take you know a choice that they need to make or, you know, even when their information is put at risk, like how that's communicated and the next steps that they they need to take. So, you know, I like to always kind of have that visual because I think sometimes UX designers think, well, security doesn't impact me. You know, it's it's somebody else's job, right? It's it's your job, for example. Yeah. Um, but but that's not true. Like some of it, it some of it n does not bubble to the surface. Some some of it is underneath. Um, and that part, you know, maybe you are not responsible for, but where it, it impacts the user experience, where it bubbles to the surface, that is where you are responsible. And that's where a UX designer would potentially talk to you and your team. Um, and I imagine that a lot of things that you talk about are related to trade-offs, right? Like we could do this yeah. or we could do that. And this might affect the user experience in this way, you know, and this might affect security in this way. Like, can you talk a little bit about that, especially like I think it'd be nice to get a perspective from a security professional. Yeah, it it's full of trade-offs. And I think ultimately everyone's goal is to prevent data breaches and protect the users and make the user's life easier, more pleasant, um, which doesn't really work if you're saying, oh, we got hacked and here's some credit monitoring or, or something. <laughs> uh go take it and leave us alone uh yeah that's a really good point like that's that in and of itself is a horrible user experience like the the fact that you would get that you would get hacked that you you lost misplaced uh exposed your customers information like that is a bad user experience yeah so, you know you have to think about well what are the roadblocks that we want to put in place that will keep them We'll make sure that that doesn't happen. But at the same time, like in the moment, the user is like, oh, this is too annoying. I hate MFA. You yeah. Know? And you you wouldn't tell someone to like 
ride a bicycle and pad every inch of their body at some point <laughs> like adding uh safety and security controls is just you know it, it gets to be too much so it right. it really is full of trade-offs and I think about some people are more experienced with computers than others and can better protect their own security. So in some cases, it's all right to give a bit more trust uh, and flexibility to those users, but it's hard to assume that, you know, your whole audience doesn't have the same experience level. So oftentimes you need to cater to a lower you know, level of computer or security knowledge, which means building in more protections. And it could mean annoying or slowing down people who, you know, do have more of that knowledge and awareness. Unfortunately, I think about how, like, every time I log into my bank or something, like, it never remembers my password. I always have to get a new, like, text message code. And I'm like, this is tiring. Um, but they're doing it to protect, you know, the the average consumer, which makes right. sense. I think trade-offs are difficult because you want to give the, you know, most pleasant user experience possible, but you do want to build in protections to cater to everyone. Yeah, I'm hoping you could give some examples. Like we had talked about MFA before, um, in different yeah. like, security controls like what sort of things go through your mind yeah i i think about login pages a lot because a login is the most critical part of most software uh if you can compromise a user account or get past a weak login page you have you know access to the world uh so some companies might try to require multi-factor authentication for every login. Are you going to force a user to put a code in every login? Like I said, a lot of banks do that. Um, okay, if you're going to do that, is it going to be a text message? Is it going to be an authenticator app? Is it going to be a push notification to the phone? Or are you using even a more advanced uh, method like a hardware key, a YubiKey, or pass keys, which are really becoming popular. Um, and these are trade-offs because each each time you do require a code or something like that, you are slowing down the user and maybe creating some frustration. But uh, multi-factor is, you know, the strongest defense we have to protecting accounts because passwords themselves are not strong enough to really keep attackers out of an account. Uh, and it's the same with CAPTCHAs, uh, you know, do you want to add a CAPTCHA to your login page and make people solve a puzzle or something? Um, or maybe you only do that after someone has a few failed login attempts, but if you don't have that CAPTCHA, you know, attacker with a botnet, thousands of computers and IP addresses is going to be just sending tons of requests to your login page and it's going to get through to some accounts. Uh, or I know we've talked about examples like GitHub, where when you want to make privileged account changes, they'll ask you for a password maybe every like 15 minutes or something and leave you in an elevated privilege mode. So I think that's a nice trade off between, you know, making sure someone 
confirms and knows what they're doing is sensitive and they still you know are the owner of that account but giving them some power and flexibility to make changes afterward for a while yeah when you described that to me the first time um i thought to myself a little dose of privilege and that's what i ended up <laughs> using in my book because i think that illustrates it perfectly i'm gonna throw you for a loop what how do you define privilege or privileges yeah, I I think it's about the level of data access that someone has, whether it's to read data or write data. Are you someone at a company where you can access databases of customers and see all this information? Or maybe you're just an end user and you're able to go into your account and update bank account info or credit card details and sensitive financial info or PII, um, you, you know, it's the access you have to read or write sensitive data or take sensitive actions like transfer money or delete an account or, you know, any number of other things. It, it really is your privilege is the level of sensitive data or actions you have access to. It's like what you can see and what you can do. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and I guess I would be remiss if I didn't say the principle of least privilege, which is? Keeping it to only the very minimum of what you need to do your job or you know get your task done. Uh, and that's a great principle. And it's one we preach all the time in security, you know, give people the privileges and access to data and actions they need, you know, for their tasks or for the work they're doing. And don't give them a million other things because accidents can happen, attacks can happen. If someone else gets access to that account, suddenly they have the privilege to do a bunch of things that, you know, the real user didn't even have any need for anyway. Right. Or or they can read a bunch of data that that real user never would have needed to look at. Um, so adding, you know, least privilege measures just, you know, really helps prevent against accidents and prevent against attacks when someone else is getting into that account. Yeah. Um, and probably, and maybe you said this already, but like, um, I'm just thinking of like malicious insiders, right? Like someone who, I don't know, a disgruntled employee who decides they want to do things that they shouldn't do. Yeah, definitely. That That's a big one. And um, you would probably see that a lot of security teams even have sub teams dedicated to insider risk because it is important, um, you know, limiting the access and privilege of people even inside the company when they might want to do something nefarious. Um, I want to talk about a quote that you said last time that I thought was really interesting, and hopefully you can expand on it and tell everyone what you mean by it. You said, how quiet do you want to be to the user? I thought this was really an interesting way of putting things. Yeah, um, I think we might have talked about this in the context of, you know, what I describe as like the perfect authentication flow where when a user tries to log in and maybe they put in a username and a password and then you ask them for an authenticator app code, um, 
if one of those pieces is wrong, do you give him back an error saying your password's wrong, try again, or your app code is wrong, try again? Mm -hmm. The problem if you tell the user something like that is then they know the other two pieces were right, the username was right, or the password is right, and now we just need to specifically attack the code or something. Right. Um, so in this idea of the perfect login flow, you collect all the information from the user, and then if something's if everything's all good, you let them through. If even one piece is wrong, you just say something is wrong, try again, um, which you know, it does make for an admittedly worse user experience because you're saying we're not going to tell you what you did wrong, but you should you should just trust us that something is wrong and, you know, submit everything again. And that could be a pain. Uh, but that's a good example of a trade off, because how how verbose and how much do you want to tell the user what's wrong in an error message? Uh, making things clearer does make an attacker's job easier um, and you don't want to really reveal every security control or every security check you have happening on the back end but it's certainly a trade-off because you're frustrating the user and security through obscurity is you know generally considered unwise in our industry you like hiding information should not be your you know, only line of defense because once an attacker realizes what's being hidden, they're going to get past it pretty quickly. So it's only a single layer of defense, but it is it is something, right? Um, so yeah, how much you're telling a user is a tricky problem and something we think about a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this will resonate with designers because one of the one of the heuristics that we learn early on is you want to give the user the right information in order to rectify a problem. So like if they're, you know, if they're going through a form and they're trying to fill something out, say it's like an e-commerce store, right? And like they're, they didn't put the correct number of digits in their zip code. Well, the error on the form should say, you know, your zip code is wrong or like this is not a, a valid zip code. And that gives the user the information that they need to fix it quickly and accurately. Um, even better if it's like, you know, doing it in line, right? Like, so you're, you're typing it out and it's validating it as, as you go. So for a designer, it's, you know, they're thinking to themselves, well, why wouldn't I, you know, give the user all the information that they need to, to yeah. fix this issue, right? Like that's, it's literally ingrained in them. But like, if you're thinking from your perspective, you're thinking, well, an attacker could use this information to get into the system. Like you're just giving them more information than, than you would necessarily like. So yeah, security through obscurity is what is how you defined it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and like I said, you don't want to rely totally on security through obscurity, but sometimes it is helpful. And like you said, I'm all for giving the user info and places where it helps, like filling out forms and addresses and whatnot. But when it comes to revealing info about what's going on in our security checks and processes, it's a little bit harder and you need to consider what's worth it and what's not. Yeah, it's ultimately like a risk decision. Yeah, right. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what if what do those conversations look like with the different teams involved? Yeah, I you know, 
when I go to a team with, you know, one or more solutions to maybe a vulnerability or weakness that we found, it comes down to what solution is in line with the team's needs and acceptable risk. Again, I'm, I don't want to be the person mandating anything. I want to present, you know, options and let someone make a decision. Uh, And I think the most important part of my job is conveying how important or critical an issue is. So, you know, the team is fully aware of what's going on, fully aware of the risk and can choose to accept that risk or take one of our solutions and maybe uh, eliminate or minimize that risk in different ways. So what has surprised you like over the course of your career when it comes to the security user experience? Like what sort of things have you learned or like aha moments that you've had? Um, it's surprised me that often you know, security controls seem to be implemented to fix some very immediate issue, like our login pages, um, you know, under constant attack by botnets or DDoS or something. So let's put in CAPTCHAs or let's require multi-factor from everyone. Um, so you build in the security control quickly, but then you don't go back to look at you know, how can we improve this now that we've, you know, patched the hole in the sinking ship? How can we mm-hmm. turn that patch into like something better? Um, so it's it's sad when you see a security control that was implemented hastily and then kind of just left in place because we, we set it and forget it, it's done. But, you yeah. know, security issues, when they're found, critical ones are often being fixed as quickly as possible because you really do need to stop the fire but what are you doing afterward to make that better so yeah that's funny i was filling out a form the other day i can't remember where it was but it was a captcha i had never encountered before and i had to kind of i had to reload it like at least five times to get it to work. And honestly, if I wasn't that interested in whatever it was that I was doing, I probably just would have closed the browser window and just like done something else. But I was incentivized enough to kind of keep going. And I was thinking to myself, like, first of all, why is this here? And second, like, <laughs> gosh, I hope they fix this, right? Like, so it's it's funny that you talk about, um, you know, okay, so something, we need to address this like immediately to like stop the bleeding basically, right? Like we have to figure out how to like keep this patient alive. But, you know, at some point you need to go back and say, is there a better way? Like hopefully. Yeah, right. And oh, wow, I had a crazy capture the other day where it was like, rotate this picture to match the like, to face where the hand is pointing because it had like one picture of a hand pointing in one direction and then like image you had to rotate on the other uh-huh. and i'm like does it mean i rotate it to face the hand or does it want me to face where, <laughs> like away from the hand where the hand is pointing so the i got it wrong like weren't even clear yeah i got it wrong the first time but then like i guess i'm really i guess i'm a robot but <laughs> i i did 
<laughs> I did get it right the next time. You're like, too some, literal. <laughs> yeah, some of the captions are just really weird these days. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a new one. I haven't encountered that one before. But like, think about how unusable that is. And like, even like you were you were confused about the instructions and like what you were actually supposed to do. I find that with them too. I'm like, well, wait, what are you asking? Like, you really have to kind of pause and think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's like, well, I didn't sign up for like a puzzle. You know, <laughs> was, that wasn't part of my, my yeah, intention. It's like, <laughs> how much of the traffic light counts? Do you want me to click this box that has just like the very bottom of the traffic light in it? <laughs> <laughs> And like, it's so it's, it has accessibility issues, like usability issues. It's it. I, gosh. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But like you said, like you're, you know, at, you're faced with an issue of being attacked by bots and you're like, well, like, what do we do? And that seems like the one kind of viable solution in the moment. So like getting back to my, my other question, like, is there a better way of doing this? And I feel like that is a question that every UX person likes to ask. Like, it's just, <laughs> we just love questions like that. Like, isn't there a better way? Like, why does it have to be this way? Right. So like, how can UX designers get involved, get a seat at the table and like start asking some of these questions that I know that they're dying to ask? Yeah, I've been thinking about this because many companies have processes for engineering teams to come to us in security and say, we have a system design or, you know, this piece of code that we want reviewed. Um, and that's where my team or others will come in and look for potential issues, maybe even before development starts and say, these are things you need to look out for, um, for the particular service or application you're building or maybe my team in particular is more dealing with it after code is already running and a website is up and people are using it, um, then we're going and testing it as if we're, you know, external attackers and looking for issues. But in either case, teams are coming to us to request these assessments and find issues. And that could be an opportunity to pull UX designers in, um, you know, just as much as we can look for security issues, UX designers can look for potential usability issues before before the software is even created. And we like to use the model and security of shift left, which means inject ourselves earlier on in the design process. And how can we you know, prevent issues from even cropping up before any code is even written. And the same can go for UX design. Um, they need to adapt your terminology. That is like every UXer's dream <laughs> is to shift left, is to be a part of the conversation early on, right? Where we can actually make a difference before it's too late. Yeah. And I think both security engineers and UX designers are probably afraid of losing that trade-off like oh if we're both involved are they going to prioritize the security issues or are they going to prioritize the usability um so i think it comes down to the need to negotiate in earnest right think think about how much the security controls are helping the user and what the ux is doing and it it doesn't have to be one or the other we've talked about trade-offs and there are compromises to be made, I think. 
Yeah. It's like the UX person walks in the door in the meeting and you're like, oh gosh, you again. Yeah. <laughs> Who invited them? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think about how I try my best on security teams to foster relationships, you know, outside to engineering teams or product teams or even non-engineering teams and get people to want to work with us and see a friendly face and security. Uh, so I, I think that outreach is great and, you know, probably helps designers just as much to create connections and honestly security and design should probably be creating connections with each other and helping each other with their processes because it it is a logical place to do so but um i feel like those connections aren't the most obvious or maybe are overlooked so yeah well something i tell ux designers is uh because sometimes when it comes to security user or ux designers are like well users just want to accomplish their goals I'm like, yes, that is true. But they like, you're kind of implicitly saying they want to accomplish those goals safely. Like they went, <laughs> they assume that their information is safe, whether, you know, it is or it isn't is another story, but they don't, they're not asking for their information to be compromised. Like they, they assume as part of the user experience that, that everything is going to go as planned. So it is your responsibility as UX designers to help them accomplish their goals safely. And that's part of, of the user experience, right? Is, is protecting the information because ultimately as obvious and as stupid as it sounds, information security is about protecting information. <laughs> yeah. And like we said, being a victim of a data breach is probably, you know, one of the worst UX failures you can have, I think. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, and one of the things as you were talking, um, kind of like brings us back full circle to what I was talking about where uh, the security user experience bubbles to the surface. I think I think UX designers can do kind of more homework thinking about how, like when that actually happens, right? Like thinking about logins, signups, um, onboarding processes, when people have to make security and privacy decisions within your product. Um, you know, even something as ridiculous as the, the cookies being, you know, opting in for cookies, like that's, that's a privacy decision that the, that the user has to make, like that's part of the user experience. It's a terrible user experience <laughs> right now. It is a part of a lot of the user experience with websites. Um, you know, anytime the user has to, you know, is expected to perform some sort of security function, whether that's enabling MFA or you know, configuring different security or privacy settings, um, you know, that's all part of the user experience. And that's as a designer, you have to understand what some of the risks are. Both, you know, your users introduce risk and threat actors introduce risks, right? Users can introduce risks, um, like you said, by making mistakes, right? Like they can accidentally share something that they're not supposed to share. You know, threat actors yeah. take advantage of the fact that humans can be manipulated and um and and that they make mistakes right so it's it's something that i feel like there's there's just so much opportunity to talk about these things and to have an open dialogue with between security and ux yeah and when you mention things like cookies it makes me think 
I think a lot of cases security, well, (laughs) yes, but security and UX design, I think are often aligned on really just, you know, wanting to give the user the best experience. And I think, you know, we could get along pretty well. I think security's bigger enemy is marketing because marketing (laughs) is the one that wants to make it as hard as, (laughs) as hard as possible to you know, opt out of the cookies and, oh, you don't want cookies here, uncheck these million different boxes, (laughs) right? Like, oh, it is is terrible. Those drive me crazy. (laughs) Yes, same. You know, I'm always interested in spreading, you know, security awareness and passion to other people. And I think it can go both ways of just get security engineers or just regular developers, others interested in UX and learning about the products they're developing and you know implementing solutions for i i think security teams can often be pretty isolated from the user experience and we're not often you know getting a chance to use the products we're trying to protect mm-hmm. um so we don't know what it's like for the user we can say these are all the defenses we need but the security team might not even see how those are impacting someone down the line. So I know I think any opportunity to get security or other engineers experience with the product and the end user experience is great because it lets us relate to the struggles. Yeah, that's such an important thing that you brought up. Like we need to show what's happening like we mean, you know, maybe we can show metrics, right? Like maybe we can share some quantitative data with you. Maybe we can show you some usability studies that we've done and where people are getting hung up or being, you know, have really frustrating experiences. Maybe we can share um, support logs, right? Or like transcripts from support conversations, people with product support on some of the frustrations that they're having. And really, I think sometimes... UX designers, you know, think, well, I'll share it like with the product managers or, you know, maybe engineering, but like, I don't think that they always think about sharing some of that information with the security team. And like you said, that's, it helps to kind of, to have that holistic picture and to actually show your, your security UX allies what's going on, right? So that they have that holistic view. Yeah. And even just take Take someone through an onboarding flow for your product. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. how hard is it as a new customer to like set up an account or set up your product or you know software or whatever? And then you yeah. see pretty quickly how the different security measures at each step are impacting the user. Yeah, and hopefully coming up with creative solutions, right? That that yeah. makes sense for for everyone. That makes sense for the user that keep them safe, you know, and it makes sense from a security perspective as well. Yeah, definitely. If there's one thing I know, both security folks and designers are very creative. So you just <laughs> join, join those forces. They're both fun jobs. Yes, they are. Lots of problems to solve. Yes, some of the most important and complex problems, which I think, you know, everyone gets excited about. And keeping people safer, which I, I know that, <laughs> I know that is important to you. It's important to me too. Yep. Well, Jason, if folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? 
LinkedIn is a good place. I don't really use much uh, other social media. Uh, you That's can surprising. find uh, my website at jasonpuglisi.com. Uh, otherwise, LinkedIn, or you can find me on GitHub too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and expertise and experiences. I've learned a lot and I hope folks listening have as well. Thank you again. So appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much, Heidi. It was great.